this is Elevation Gains Podcast. I'm Jim, an avid backpacker and hiker from Reno, Nevada. I'm Holly, a coach and weightlifter. I own a strength gym in Oakland, California. And on this podcast, we attempt to break down some of the barriers that keep people from enjoying the backcountry. Welcome to episode seven of Elevation Gains. In this episode, we talk about adventuring in different environments, in like sand and snow and, and things that you don't typically run into. Yeah, and I really like it because in your world, in the mountains, you winter is snow, right? And you venture into the snow. Here, I actually tried to avoid the snow the majority of the winter. And so I go to the beach um, or I get on a plane and I go to a beach in a warmer place. And so we kind of touched on the two ways that we do winter um, with, you know, kind of the caveat that I am starting to venture into the snow. Right. Yeah. Uh, you did a Yosemite trip in the snow. I did. I brought snowshoes, didn't use them, but did use spikes. Spoiler. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So like for me, I, I think this episode was really interesting and fun to talk about because in the winter, like if I don't hike in the snow, I just don't hike because it's four hour drive in either direction to find a place that doesn't have snow. Right. Of course. I You'd don't. have to come to the beach here. Right. Exactly. Uh, so it was interesting to me to hear your perspective on winter adventuring um, and how, how it really differs from mine because I kind of had to learn to embrace that discomfort and embrace that cold or just take winter off. Right. I also think that this comes from the fact that you are from a place where it snows. So the first time I had to like put chains on my car and drive in the snow, I was well, well, well into my 20s. And driving in the snow is actually the thing that usually keeps me away from it. So it was really cool to hear all of your tips and tricks because they're not things that I've ever learned. All my snow hiking has just been when I, you know, messed up a uh, ski lift and had to walk really far in really terrible boots. <laughs> all right. Well, with that said, on to episode seven. Hope you guys love it. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Elevation Gains. Today we want to talk about camping in the sand or in the snow and some of the uh, similarities and differences between those two environments. Yeah, exactly. And how to prep for them, right? Because we're... I call this midwinter. It feels like it should be the end of winter. It is not. Um, so we are midwinter and... Uh, we were talking about how you either charge it into the snow or you try to escape into the sand. And so those are the two environments you're probably going to be prepping for right now. Um, but first, what have, you been up, what have you been up to? Lately, not a lot. I went on my first snowshoeing trip of the year last weekend. Uh, it was just like an out and back day hike. We basically climbed up this massive pile of snow to have lunch and climb back out. Uh, it was pretty fun. 
you kind of, I think it's really important, especially for winter trips to take these little short, like shakedown trips and make sure that the stuff you have still works. And, and, you know, cause it's, if you go out for like an overnight trip and you find out that the straps on your snowshoes are old and crumbling, then you're in a world of hurt. But if you're out like three miles from the highway, that's a really good time to like shake everything out and make sure that you don't need to buy any new gear. So I took a trip like that. Uh, we had a good time. It was pretty fun. The Sierras got absolutely hammered. It's funny that you talk about like midwinter and stuff like that, because you know, you're in the Bay area. I'm right at the base of the Sierras. And for me, winter starts, you know, in like early December, but it could end in like, late March. Yeah. Or later. I mean, I went to go on a casual day hike in Lassen last year and got in a little bit of a sketchy situation with a snowstorm that took, that came upon us with not even close to the right gear because I was like, it's June. And uh, June was not the end of winter and beginning of summer. No, definitely not. And uh, you know, it's funny that you said, cause I can remember two times growing up as a kid where 4th of July fireworks were canceled due to snow. <laughs> and where again did you grow up? In Reno. Oh, shit. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born and raised right here in Reno. So, yeah, I remember two times being a little kid. I'm just like, we, why aren't we having fireworks? And my parents said, because it's snowing. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's summer. We're supposed to be done with snow. And they're like, no, we're not. But even like... <laughs> And we've talked about this trip a couple times on the on the show here, but my last Tahoe Rim Trail attempt was in mid-September and ended because I got absolutely hammered by like this random snowstorm that dropped eight inches of snow overnight. And then even after I went home, you know, I was watching the weather report because you, anytime you quit a hike, you're just like, oh, I shouldn't have quit. That was, oh man, I made a mistake. And then you always try to find that reason why why quitting was a good idea, you know, because you always want to like rationalize why you had to quit the trail. And I literally watched this snowstorm follow the fucking trail like it would have been <laughs> with me every single day for the next six days on, on trail. It would have just been snow and snow and snow and snow. And I remember looking at the uh, the snow levels. And again, this is mid-September. And this storm dumped over a span of like, it was almost like a two, 200 linear miles. Like it just, you know, storms travel. So as this storm traveled across the Tahoe basin, it dumped anywhere from six to 12 inches. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. In September. That's, that's not the best thing to be uh, <laughs> trying to hike long distances in every day. Right, yeah. And I was cranking out, like, before the storm, I was cranking out, like, 23 to 25-mile days. And then the storm hit at the worst possible point, too. I was at the highest point on the Tahoe Rim Trail. And it started oh. snowing. Yeah. And yeah. how high is the highest point? It's 9,000 and change. It's uh, oh, Dick's fuck. Pass. Yeah. It might even be, like, 91 and change. It's it's a big one. And uh, the whole day, I'm, like, looking at weather reports, and I'm, like check in, you know, like anytime I got a little bit of cell signal, I didn't like texting was not on my mind, like weather report, weather report, weather report. And it was just like rain, 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 rain. I'm like, cool. I can handle rain. Rain is fine. 
Rain is uncomfortable. Rain is miserable. But I can handle rain. And it rained for, I think, four seconds. And then just started dumping snow. And the first, like, round of snow lasted six hours. Oh, God. Yeah. So, like, I'm in, like, running shorts. No! And, and, yeah, yeah. Like, running shorts and my, it's like, super ultra lightweight topo running shoes, trail shoes. Um, and, like, the only, like, rain protection I had was, like, a super thin, like, ultralight rain jacket. So, like, nothing, no gloves. I didn't even have pants, like, with me that I could change into. It was just literally the shorts that I was wearing. Oh, no, and, no. Yeah, it was terrible. And I keep bumping into PCT through hikers, you know, and they're doing, like, they're, they're northbound. They're walking from Mexico to Canada. And they're in the exact same boat as me. And they're like, every single person I pass, they're like, well, when did it start snowing? I'm like, at like 11. Oh, well, how far up does the snow go? And I'm like, like, at least Dick's Pass? Oh. <laughs> and we're all like in the same, we're all in like super lightweight, like windbreakers, essentially, and like short shorts and like super thin shoes. And it's just, just like, it was snowing so bad that at one point, uh, the tracks from the northbound hikers as I was going south were no longer visible. Like I, I, I'd had, I'd get maybe 20 or 30 yards being able to follow footprints and then they were all filled in. Okay. So first of all, this may be the perfect lead in to this episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also I think like, I just want to highlight something and that's like, uh, we both tell stories about, uh, you know, sketchy things or or whatever, th- situations that have happened to us that were not necessarily fun um, <laughs> uh, on different trips. And I feel like the, the thing, the lesson from all of it is that the mountains are fucking unpredictable and that you could be in September in shorts, hiking along, feeling warm, feeling stoked. And then all of a sudden, wham, you're in the middle of a snowstorm. And like that actually getting prepped for things is really important. So it makes me even more stoked that we're having this conversation. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I actually hadn't planned on telling that story. It just sort of came up in conversation. So I'm glad it did because it is it is a perfect lead in because like snow camping is super intimidating to a lot of people. Uh, I just recently put up a poll on my YouTube channel to ask, you know, if you have never gone snow camping, like what's the barrier keeping you from, from trying it. And, you know, some of the options were like, I'm afraid I don't have the right gear. Uh, I hate the cold and I just, I don't want to go out in the cold. And then I left one category just like other and let people leave comments about this is, this was my reason. And the two biggest things that came up were the fact that it gets dark super, super early. So you just have like, like, on a normal hike for me anyway, and I, it's going to be different for everybody, but like on a normal trip for me, I hike from sun up to sundown. I set up my shelter, I eat my food and I go to bed, but sun up to sundown in the summer. I mean, I can literally walk from like six o'clock in the morning until like seven thirty, almost eight o'clock at night. Right. In, in the winter, especially in the West, uh, the sun's going down at like five thirty, six o'clock. And it's not coming up again until 637 
the next morning. So you've got anywhere from like 12 to 13 hours in your shelter, whatever shelter you choose. And that's a long time. Like that's a lot of time to sit in a tent. Right. And it, I think it's actually currently tighter than that. I think it gets dark right now at just after five and sunrise is just before seven thirty. So in, and, and again, this is one of those things where it might be a me specific thing because I, my buddy, Brian and I, who, who, Brian is the guy I hike with the most. He he and I have done the vast majority of the trips that I've been on in the last three or four years have been with Brian. And we've sort of coined this term to describe ourselves. And uh, we call ourselves professional idiots. Because, <laughs> like, we know what we're doing. Like, we know how to survive in... Throw an environment at us. And we we know what to do. But we will find a way to make it stupid. Like we will, like most people go hiking in the snow and it's just like, okay, I'm going to stay on this nice flat ground on this nice flat trail. Brian and I are like, why don't we just climb up to like 9,000 feet in the snow? <laughs> Cause that sounds fun. Like let's throw on our snowshoes and just go straight uphill. And uh, so a lot of the things that we've had to deal with and a lot of the things that we've had to kind of like overcome were definitely direct results of like our own poor decision making. <laughs> we have this in common. <laughs> and that's why we have a podcast. So people can learn, so people can learn from our mistakes. No, but seriously, I talk about how like I became a good coach because I made all the mistakes so my athletes don't have to. And that's kind of like a little bit how I live a lot of my life. Like I have made a myriad of mistakes and magically I have not died or been injured in a way that kept me from making more mistakes in the future. Um, and uh, I really want to make it so that other people don't have to make those same mistakes because it sucks. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like if I can spare one person having a miserable night on a snow trip and in, instead helping them find like a love for it based on just dumb things that I've done, then, then this whole episode was completely worth it. Before we jump fully into snow, um, I want to talk about a sand adventure that I just got back from. Actually, we went and in Point Reyes right now, the big male elephant seals are coming up onto shore. And it is a wild experience. So elephant seals are really, really cool. They dive to more than 5,000 feet in the ocean. Um, they all go out to this one point that's like basically equidistance between Mexico and Alaska. And they all dive really, really, really deep in basically the same place. And I recently discovered they do it to sleep because there's no predators down there and they can hold their breath for over a hundred minutes. Um, so they can hold their breath longer than most whales. Um, but there are also many tons. And when the big males come out of the water, they rear their head up and they make this guttural sound that sounds like a, um, like a space villain insect thing in a sci-fi from the eighties. <laughs> Is it weird that I can hear that without ever actually having heard it? Like, I know, I know exactly what you're describing, but I have never actually heard that sound happen. 
Um, so it's really, really cool. The elephant seal season here is neat and I love it. But um, this whole year, as I've talked about many times and we've talked about at length, I've had this nagging, pretty serious injury in my right leg that came from February, um, February diving trip. And so as a result, I haven't been able to walk on soft surfaces. And for the first time this year, I was able to walk on a beach for a shorter than I wanted, but a couple of hours. Uh, so we got like this long terrestrial hike down to the beach and this big male elephant seal comes out of the water in the most dramatic fashion for like a half an hour, splashing his face down in the water. And this guy's probably two tons um, and bloobering himself up onto the beach. And anyway, I just wanted to say like, that's what I've been up to watching wild sea monsters come out of the ocean. Uh, and Build, they're about to build harems and have a whole bunch of baby elephant seals, which are really fun too, because you find them all over the beach, hidden in not good hiding places, which is super <laughs> funny. I wonder though, like when your when your parent is this this massive couple ton, like like do you need a good hiding place at that point? <laughs> well. They don't defend their babies, unfortunately. The moms do, and they're pretty big, not nearly as big as the males. But as I understand it, the babies actually get crushed kind of often by males that are fighting each other. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And actually, I want to say this. Uh, I just found out and I just found out that I guess the reason that you're not supposed to approach elephant seals in close proximity, I think it's 20 feet it's two full car lengths, something like that. There's signs on all of the beaches. Um, but you shouldn't get close to them because they will charge you and they are aggressive and they are scary. But I guess human presence makes them fight each other and then they stop noticing their babies are around and they're more likely to kill their babies when humans walk up to them. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing I didn't know until very recently. That's good to know, actually. Yeah. Wow. That is right? terrifying. Yeah. I don't, so, I, don't think, I don't think I like that story. <laughs> so my last adventure was sand and my next adventure is about to be snow. So this will actually be my first like longer snow hike. And by longer, I mean like longer than traipsing around in the snow, like a excited, you know, snow ballerina, not like actual hiking. Um, it'll be my first time putting on snowshoes and trying to trying to actually do a hike in the snow. So I'm really excited about it. And it makes me really excited about this episode. Right. So you're you're planning on going to Yosemite, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. We're going to go into the valley because, uh, and this is a funny twist of names, but you primarily hike with Brian and I primarily hike with Brian, but they are different Brians. Uh, and he has never seen the Yosemite Valley outside of a wedding in a cabin in the valley once and they drove nowhere. Oh, wow. So now are you all planning on camping while you're out there or is this just like a day hike situation? No. So um, hopefully we'll do this uh, or we'll talk about this more in the future, but a lot of our trips, especially right now, owning a gym in January is a little bonkers. Um, but we drive up after work and we'll either camp at a trailhead. Uh, hopefully soon, fingers crossed, I'll have a tent on top of a truck. And uh, sometimes we get a hotel. So in this particular case, we're getting a hotel in a town called Groveland, which is about an hour away from the trailhead. So we will start and then we're planning on doing eight miles, which is a really short hike, but I don't know how snow is going to affect me. So this is me 
dipping my toe into the snow situation. So I can tell you from experience, uh, eight miles on snow, especially on snowshoes, mm-hmm. is very, very long. That's what I figured, which is why yeah. I was like, I think that's going to be plenty. Yeah. Like now, now, are you talking like eight miles total, like out and back, or eight miles one way? Yeah, exactly. So it is eight miles total, and uh, we are going to do 2,200 foot elevation change. So it's not super aggressive, but it isn't easy either. I, I will be interested to hear how your opinion on that changes after you've done it. <laughs> well, I have all this really good snow gear and I do want to actually be in a tent and wake up next to a lake as you have magically described one day. And I'm not going to do that if I don't start doing little hikes, you know? Yeah, no, but that's, that's a big snow hike. Like that's typically like when I go out on a snowshoe, or like on an overnight trip where it's like three miles in, three miles out, like hike, right. hiking on the snow is a completely different experience you know and and i think that's where a lot of new snow hikers uh get burnt out really quick is you know oh well i can walk 20 miles on the pct in july so i'm gonna set up this this snowshoeing trip and we're gonna go in you know we'll walk in eight miles and camp and walk out and then they realize that okay so you can do 20 miles in 12 hours or whatever and then you get out on the snow and you can do like four miles in six hours. I'm actually over here, like ridiculously excited to make walking harder. <laughs> you, you found the right way. And that's like, like, how can we have a leg workout that's also hiking? So two things I'm going to tell you right now about snowshoes. Uh, it is almost entirely hip flexors and glutes yeah which which you won't expect like you'll get out there and you'll think oh this will be like a full leg workout no it like hyper focuses on like your hip flexors and your glutes and the only goal the snow has is to make those two areas of your body hurt as much as possible oh man i'm so stoked so actually i have a lot of experience walking in snow I just don't have a lot of experience hiking in snow. I grew up skiing and we spent a lot of time walking around in the snow. I've never put on a snowshoe though. Um, I have put on little spikes and they're fantastic. Um, But yeah, I will definitely report back. I'm sure it'll be in our next episode how um, really amazing, really painful or really whatever (laughs) it was. (laughs) And hopefully, I mean, it'll be a combination of all of those things. Like I... I absolutely love winter camping. Uh, I think two years ago now, I did a video for the YouTube channel called Five Reasons I Love Winter Camping. And I'm going to do another one here in the next few weeks, uh, Five More Reasons I Love Winter Camping. Because I truly, I really look forward to winter trips. And I know that for a lot of people, that might sound insane. For a lot of other people, you're probably going, yeah, yeah, me too. But like... There is a peace and a quiet when you're hiking in the snow that you you can't experience at any other time in your life. Like the snow itself absorbs sound. So it's just it's this very unique and special brand of quiet that you can't experience unless you get out into the backcountry in the snow. Um, there are no bugs 
You don't ever have to worry about getting attacked by bugs. You know, it's it's there's challenges for sure. Like keeping your tent set up is is a rough one. And we'll dip into that. I have some tips and tricks for everybody on how to keep your tent up in the winter. But uh, I absolutely love it. So I'm, I'm stoked to be talking about it on this episode. Um, I don't have a ton of experience hiking or camping in sandy environments. But I do have the Lost Coast trip coming up in April, and that's going to be a lot of hiking and camping on sand. Yeah, so I have extensive knowledge of hiking on sand, but not a lot of experience camping on sand. But I have some trips that I'm starting to plan that are island hopping camping trips. Um, So that should be fun to report back on sometime, hopefully very, very soon. But real quick, you and I were on a really wonderful little summer trip and we were sitting there and I was like, I can't fucking imagine doing a snow hiking trip. And you were like, "Okay, hold on. Here's the deal. So it's really, really quiet. No one else is out. You wake up and you described waking up next to a frozen lake as the lake got warmer as the day got warmer and it made these little crackly sounds and I don't remember exactly your words which I am regretting now uh and then you described uh the possibility of climbing up and then tobogganing down and these are the reasons that I started building my winter gear (laughs) (laughs) yeah so tobogganing not necessarily because like you know, you watch on, especially, you know, YouTube and a lot of like on Disney Channel and stuff like that. You'll see people crossing the tundra, towing their sled, you know, and all their gears in the sled. And it looks like this fantastic oh, idea. I think you described tobogganing on your butt. Yes, that's where I was going with this. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that is called glissading. And it is wicked fun. Um, it's also wicked dangerous. So don't do this unless you know what you're doing and you have the right gear. The two most important things about glissading, and and these are absolute, like, these are non-negotiable. Don't wear your crampons or your snowshoes while you're doing it. Absolutely, 100%, do not do that. Because if you catch an edge or you catch a spike, you're literally going to flip head over heel down the hill. And it's, I've literally seen it happen. It's terrifying. It breaks bones. Take that shit off your boots before you sit down on your butt to slide down the hill. The second thing that is absolutely non-negotiable, carry an ice axe. Because your ice axe acts as a rudder and a brake. Okay. All right. I love that. And are we going to lead straight into how to prep for snow camping? Yeah, let's do it. Um, I think one of the common misconceptions that people have about snow camping is that you have to have winter specific gear and winter specific gear is fantastic. If you can afford to purchase it, go for it. It's, it's great. But for the most part, you can winter camp with stuff you probably already have Uh, a three season tent. You can use that in the snow. You just have to do a little extra work when you're setting it up. And it depends a lot on how deep the snow is where you are. You know, I see I see a lot of people. I've got a lot of friends in the Midwest and in Kentucky and areas like that who go snow camping. But they're dealing with like six to eight inches of snow. The Sierra's got 200 inches in December. 
<laughs> that does not include the snow the Sierras got prior to December, and it does not include the snow it will continue to get. It's snowing up there right now as we speak. I'm looking at weather reports. Say. Yeah, because I was gonna go. Uh, I was gonna try to go out overnight camping this weekend because I just got a bunch of new gear I want to test, and it, it's just dumping snow. So I'm gonna I'm gonna postpone the trip and go at a later date. But depending on the depth of the snow you're dealing with, a three season tent is fine. You, you have to make sure, like, once you get the tent all set up, once you get your your pad smacked down, because you have to, you kind of have to smoosh the snow down so that you have like a flat spot to lay the snow or to lay the tent in. And you can use like your skis or your your snowshoes or whatever. You just walk back and forth until you create this nice flat surface to set your tent up. It's um, like a cat situation. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy, actually. Um, once the tent is set up, you can build up little snow berms next to the rain fly to prevent the wind from blowing in under. Because the number one thing that's going to happen whenever you camp in the snow is that it's going to get windy at night. And it doesn't matter if you're in the west or in the east or in the in the middle of the country. Winter and wind go hand in hand. And so what'll happen with a three season tent, because you have all that mosquito netting for ventilation, the wind will actually shoot under your rain fly and these little tiny crystals of dry snow will blow through the mosquito netting. And so all night you're just getting pelted with little snowflakes. So you want to build up a wind berm so that when the wind hits that berm, it actually goes up over the rain fly instead of under the rain fly. And it helps keep you warmer and drier on the inside, but it's totally doable. Like I do own a four season tent, which is specific for winter camping. They're, they're fucking expensive and not everyone can afford one. And I think it's like a huge barrier for somebody who might be interested in camping in the snow, but like all they have is like their regular camping tent, you know, or their regular backpacking tent. And you can totally use those tents in snow you just have to it's just a little extra labor when you're setting the tent up um i also have like zero degree sleeping bags and things like that but there's tricks around that like if you have like a shoulder season bag like a 20 degree bag and then you have like a summer bag you can do what's called stacking so you'll take the lighter of the two bags and put it inside the heavier bag and it's not an exact equation like you can't add like a 40 degree and a 20 degree and now you've got you know, this zero degree bag, but you can keep yourself relatively warm by stacking two sleeping bags together. That is fucking brilliant. It's a good trick. I actually learned it from, uh, I fell down a rabbit hole a while ago of bushcraft YouTube because I, I see all these, my friend, my YouTube friends anyway, who live in the Midwest and they're going out winter camping and they've got f- campfires and all this stuff going. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you literally like you could add up all the snow you had for the last four years. And it doesn't I- I equate to the amount we got last month. See, I didn't realize that. 200 inches of snow is a lot. Like, and, and when you say it like 200 inches, people go like, oh, well, you know, whatever. That's a two story building. <laughs> that's, that's I don't how deep that is. That's a two story building. Is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And so you picture trying to have a campfire 
on top of a two-story building made of marshmallow. <laughs> that sounds delicious. It does, but it's not going to work very well. Like, And so I was watching all these bushcraft videos like, okay, so how do you have a fire on like super deep snow? And right. uh, th- this next winter trip we take, we're going to try it. And I'm, I'm going to film the whole thing and pass or fail. I think it's going to make for at least an entertaining video. Well, I hope there isn't like a gym tree well with you at the bottom of it. <laughs> so tree wells are real. I don't know oh, if no, people... I meant like if you dug like a deep hole with your with your little fire fire as you like. Oh, right. Yeah. Into a, into in, like a tree well. Although I do think that that's a really good transition because people do not realize how scary tree wells are. Yeah. And the thing is like. Tree wells in and so for for anybody who's who's listening who may not know what a tree well is, picture a forty foot tall pine tree, and then you get two hundred inches of snow. Well, the pine tree by design deflects a lot of that falling snow, so you'll have a void in you know around the circumference of the tree down to the trunk where there's this 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 deep hole that you can literally fall into. Tree wells in and of themselves are fairly easy to spot because you you see the tree. The thing that'll get you is the bush and boulder wells. Because, you know, if you have bushes along a trail that are six feet tall or boulders that are even like 12 feet tall, those can get completely covered in snow. And you can fall into those. And I've done it. I've got a video coming out on Monday where I fell waist deep and we're out snowshoeing and I walked over the top of a bush because you can't see it it's buried in the snow and whoop straight down so if I am somebody who wants to start in on snow journeying right like I want to start going on hikes I'm not quite ready to go backpacking but that's my my goal what are some of the first pieces of gear that I should start looking at that are the most important so definitely um a good layering system for your clothing and an ideal layering system is you're going to have a base layer, which is like your next to skin layer. That doesn't necessarily have to be an insulating layer, although it can be depending on if, you know, if you run really hot or you run really cold, you might want to make base layer decisions based on your personal body temperature. But the primary function of a base layer is to wick sweat away from your body. Because, you know, hiking on the snow, you're still exerting yourself. You're still sweating. And having all that moisture next to your skin leaves you open to, you know, hypothermia and all kinds of other dangerous things. So that base layer should be something that is a wicking material that can pull the sweat away from your body and keep your, your skin dry. Your next layer in, this is where insulation starts. You want a mid layer. And... Typically, you want something that works as like an active mid-layer. So you want to have like ventilation in the armpit areas. Um, you, 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 it want, you want it to be something that can keep you warm, but not too warm. Because you don't want it to create a situation where you're sweating too much because of the clothes you're wearing. So your mid-layer should be something that you can be active in. You can move in. You can hike in. You can snowshoe in. If skiing's your thing, you know, something you can ski in. Without overheating, but also without keeping you super cool. And then you always want to carry some kind of an outer layer for when you've stopped. 
Because inevitably on a hike, you're going to stop for lunch. You're going to stop to appreciate the view. You're going to stop just to rest, you know, and you're in the winter, you're automatically going to start getting cold. So you want some kind of a good outer layer. I carry like a compressible puffy jacket is, is my outer layer. Um, and then I always carry two pairs of gloves. I have like a light kind of liner, uh, typically waterproof glove for the actual hiking part. And then I have my actual like heavy duty insulated gloves for when we're not moving. So I would say number one thing before you hit the trail in the snow is focus on a good layering system for your clothing. And it doesn't have to be wildly expensive. You know, I've seen some uh, synthetic base layers, polyester and, and spandex and stuff like that for like seven bucks. So, I mean, it does, you don't have to break the bank, but you do want to have some kind of a system to where you can add or remove clothing as needed, depending on your body temperature. So for me, I don't, again, I don't have experience with uh, hiking, although I soon will uh, in the snow. I have a lot of experience with skiing and um, I will say that the wetness is something that has gotten me several times and having uh at least for me it's really important to have pants that uh i can like sit down in snow and have them not get super super wet when i am warm so like that has been something that was really important to me is having pants that are water resistant not necessarily even insulating yeah and so i think with the with the bottom half of your body it's kind of the same situation you want to have that wicking layer next to your skin, some kind of like thermal pant or, or underwear or something like that. Um, and then you don't necessarily need a mid layer on your legs. Although if you're a person who runs very, very cold, it couldn't hurt to have some kind of like a fleece pant or something on top of the base layer. And then I always just run with just a waterproof shell. They're not insulated at all. They're just like a, just like a standard like snowboarding pant. Um, exactly. Um, okay. I love conversations of temperature between us because uh, for reference, uh, I live in Oakland. At what cold is to me is around 55. <laughs> Let's just call it 60. Let's be real. Um, I am currently in my heated apartment and what you see is a black shirt, but what you don't see is the three other shirts underneath. And I coach in a largely outdoor gym and I probably wear six layers on the average day being down there in Oakland weather. And so it's always funny. You're like, you need like three layers. I'm like, let's just double that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, with your layering system, there's a lot of wiggle room. Like something that I've started doing just in the last two winters is I'll have my, my hiking layering system and then my at camp layering system because the second you stop moving, whether it's, yeah, whether it's snowshoeing or skiing or whatever the thing is you're doing, uh, the second you stop, you feel that cold. And I don't care how resilient you are. You know, I mean, I go on overnight snow camping trips four or five times a year. And so I'm sleeping outdoors in the low teens, sometimes even single digits. And that sounds wildly extreme, but if you have the right equipment it's it's really not like it's it it can be a little gnarly and i've definitely had a few nights where you know we were expecting 
lows of like eight or nine degrees Fahrenheit and it dipped into the negatives and we just were not prepared for that. But it does it doesn't happen that often. And so I have like my hiking layering system, which is typically like what we talked about, the base layer, the mid layer and the outer. And then I have my at camp layering system. And that is like a much heavy, heavier duty base layer. It's usually like some kind of a fleece or uh, like Patagonia makes this really fun one. That's a, it's like a grid fleece where it looks almost like a checkerboard on the inside. And the little spaces between the squares actually hold body heat. Cause that's the goal with this. Like no article of clothing is going to make you warm. And I think that's a really important thing for people to, to realize like, Unless you've got like some battery operated thing with like heating elements in it, there's not a single thing you can put on that's going to make you warm. They're all designed to keep you warm. Well, you're keeping yourself warm, right? Like as if your body is constantly burning calories to keep your body warm enough and more calories, the colder it gets, right? So like you're trying to keep what I think of, which is definitely like um, overly scientific coach speak but like you want to keep those calories in yeah you basically you want to retain as much of the natural heat that your body is generating as possible and so the clothes you're going to wear while you're moving might be a little bit more breathable and they might really focus on wicking moisture away but the clothes you're going to wear while you're stationary it's all about retaining heat so you want thicker insulation better insulation um i actually have it's really fun it's from Patagonia. I got it from their one of their discount sales. So I got it super, super, super cheap because Patagonia stuff is like wildly expensive. But it's like a grown-up onesie. And I love this thing. And it's got that grid fleece like I'm talking about. And this thing is, is so freaking warm. It's got a hood. It's got the little thumb loops so you can pull it down and then put the gloves on top over it. Uh, and that's what I sleep in. So I'll put that on and then I'll climb into like my winter rated bag. Um, it doesn't do much for wicking. So it's, it's a terrible thing to wear while you're moving. But when you're stationary, just to have something that will trap body heat and keep it next to you, it's fantastic. I have to say that picturing you in an adult onesie in a little tent in the woods, <laughs> in the snow, is like maybe the most endearing thing I've ever thought about in my whole life. <laughs> My but my buddy calls it the Gumby suit because it's bright green. Oh, amazing! Yeah, but it, it's a great insulating layer. And when you're stationary, you know you 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 have to think about these things in terms of moving and not moving. Because when you're moving, your priority is removing that moisture away from your body. But when you're stationary, your priority is trapping as much body heat as humanly possible. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned calories. Because that is a wildly important part of this. Um, eat more calories than you think you need in the winter. Like, like if you're hiking in the summer and your typical calorie intake for a 20-mile day is like 32 to 3,800 calories, add another four or five for winter camping. And you want to try to eat like as close to climbing into your shelter as possible. Just for clarity, uh, four or five hundred, four or five calories, or four or five thousand? Four or five hundred calories. Yeah, so you want to push it, you know, like if, by, for me, typically, because I 
I like to hike at a calorie deficit. Um, I don't know why. It's just something that I've I've always done. And for me, for my metabolism, it 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 gives me the most energy and the most you know usable energy throughout the day. I find that if I if I'm burning you know, and I, I can't think of any exact numbers right now, but let's for, for the sake of conversation, if I'm burning 5,000 calories a day and I'm eating 5,200 calories, I'm usually pretty like sluggish and weird by the end of the day. But if I'm burning 4,800 calories and I'm eating 4,500 calories, then I'm usually feeling pretty good by the end of the day. So for my metabolism, working at a calorie deficit um, works better. So Using those numbers, let's say my average intake on a summer hike is 4,200 calories. On a winter hike with less mileage, because there's no way I'm walking 20 miles in the snow, I'll still try to hit, you know, somewhere between 43 to 5,000 calories a day, just because I want to have all that that burn to to generate body heat. And I'll usually Definitely. eat, yeah, and I'll usually I'll try to eat. 380 to 400 calories right before I climb into my sleeping bag. Yeah, that's really smart because your body's going to be trying to keep itself warm throughout the night. It's not just going to be staying there like you are when you're in your house. Right, exactly. And the same, you know, the similar idea to there's no article of clothing that's going to make you warm. There's no sleeping bag that's going to make you warm. Sleeping bags are designed to trap your body heat. And so having like an appropriate sleep system when you're out in the winter, you know, you want to have like a sleeping pad that's got a decent insulation value and a sleeping bag that has a decent insulation value, even if you have to stack them. Um, Like right now, my sleeping pad has a pretty low insulation value. They, they, they rate these by R value. I'm not a hundred percent sure what it means. I just know the higher number means more insulation. So my current sleeping pad is like a 3.6 R value, which is great for like fall hiking. So in the winter, I carry another, have you seen those are like, uh, like the Thermarest, like silver fold up sleeping pads. They're so like those great ones, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So if you get the kind with the silver on them, those typically have an R value of around three or 3.2. So I'll lay that down first and then my inflatable pad and then my sleeping bag. So I'm even even within the sleeping pad, I'm doing that that idea of stacking, like I talked about, of using two sleeping bags. It's just I have a zero degree bag. I just don't have like a really winter appropriate sleeping pad. Okay, so I'm going to tangent here, and I hope that my uh, I like to go down sometimes instead of up doesn't bore folks here, and we've got some divers too. But um, the the similarities between planning for snow and uh, planning for water are so, they're, it's just so similar. Like I stack my wetsuits, you have to eat a ton of calories to keep your body warm because it's constantly having to generate heat in this cold environment that's constantly pulling it out. Um, you don't really have to worry about sweat, which is a nice thing. Um, but I just think it's really interesting to think about like, okay, like millimeters in wetsuits, our value in mountain gear. Like there's just, it's totally parallel. And I think that's really cool. Um, so any, uh, anything you want to touch on closing this, this snow conversation? The, the one main point 
that I would like to get out. Like if you have any interest in snow hiking or snow backpacking or snow camping and you just haven't done it yet, doing like what Holly's doing next week is perfect. Find a trail, go out for a day, go back home or go to a hotel room where you can warm yourself up. Um, but just get out, like, you know, go out for two hours or three hours, you know, go out for four miles or eight miles in your case and just test it out. You can rent a lot of gear. You can rent snowshoes. You can rent trekking poles, um, stuff like that. So you don't have to really dive in and fully invest in this and then find out you hate it. Yeah. You can, you can just go to like an outdoor retailer, your neighborhood outdoor retailer. And it's pretty likely that they're going to rent some of this gear. I know here, at least um, driving up Mount Rose highway, there's just like shops on the highway. You can just pull off and rent cross country skis and, and full packages if you need to. So it's a good way to get started. And day hikes are really, really useful because if you absolutely positively hate your day hike in the snow, don't, don't try camping. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that's really important to note. Like don't, don't go on your uh, goal trip the first time that you go out into a new environment, right? Like don't buy all the gear. Don't go on the long thing where you're going to be out for whatever nights, whatever. Try it small and then work your way up. I have made the mistake of diving in too quickly into things that ended up not being the thing that I loved. And I also recently found out that REI $20 gets you like a lifetime membership, which is wild. That I'm not trying to sell anything at all. The The reason I'm saying that is because the prices on rentals almost are cut in half when you pay that $20. So I recently learned you can basically rent everything that I'm looking for from the REI, which is the easiest place here. Um, and it's really, really inexpensive. I'm going to spend $30 all in. And that is much less than I would for snowshoes. Now, my guess, since I have not met a natural environment that I don't absolutely love and need to desperately run into with everything that I have, um, I'm sure snowshoes will be the next thing on my uh, on my list of things to research. But for now, I'm going to spend that 30 bucks. I'm going to get some, you know, kind of bottom of the barrel used snowshoes so that I can play around and see if I like it. And I will not have spent 200 250 $300. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's that's the way to do these kind of things. And that's the way to kind of approach if you've never done anything outdoors, I think that's the best way to approach the outdoors just in general terms. Totally. Borrowing things works too. If you have friends who are more aggressive in the, you know, wilderness adventure zone, especially if they're similarly sized to you, you can always be like, Hey, can I borrow this? I can I borrow that? And Hopefully they're nice and they want to support you um, and the gear isn't too expensive, whatever, whatever. But, you know, it's nice to be able to dip your toe in first. Um, OK, I'm going to dive into sand, but I'm going to do it really, really quickly, which is actually exactly as I was hoping this uh, conversation would go, because <laughs> the majority of winter is about cold. Right. Um, but. I happen to be on this whole, like, slightly obsessed with warmer water and sunny places thing right now because of free diving and my new obsession with it. Um, and I found that there was this really uncomfortable divide you have to cross between 
what I was, which is, oh, look, the ocean. Maybe sometimes I'll stick my face in it and there are fishes and that's cool. And I'm going to wear this scanty bikini because I'm a fitness person and I do weird shit like that. And I'm going to walk around and act like this is an adventure thing. And then when I got more serious, I realized very quickly that that's not the appropriate way to approach what you need to to what you need on those adventures when you're actually doing it. Um, and the first thing which you referenced is, uh, or which you talked about briefly is sand fleas and sand fleas have taken me by storm in a very, very uncomfortable way. And our last trip up the North coast of Kona, uh, I got just destroyed to the point where I was actually considering hospital, um, which is I'm saying a whole lot for me. I've gotten in car accidents and fought to not go to the hospital. Um, and they get much, much worse if you're bleeding. So they swarm you. You often don't realize that they are swarming you. And they're gnarly. They pull chunks out of your skin. They itch really bad. And what? they attack your wounds. So I, I don't know that I've ever seen or experienced a sand flea. I don't know that that's a... I, how how would one recognize a sand flea? So um, I believe, and I actually could be wrong on this because sand fleas in uh, Northern California have not gotten me as badly because I just am wearing a lot more clothes on, on a typical day, right? Northern California is actually not that warm. Um, in tropical environments, in my experience, you don't really see them. What you see is that you're... Um, legs are getting red and you're starting to like kind of panic and then you realize you're getting attacked. It's kind of this like, um, have you experienced no seums? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's kind of like that, but like times a million. And I have a trend of, of bleeding on adventures because I am kind of clumsy and run into things and fall on things and whatnot. And the last time uh, this was actually only day two of our trip. I got out of the water, a wave hit me. I fell onto um, the lava rocks, which are really, really spiky, and took a couple chunks out of my shin, uh, my knee, and my hands. My hands were fine, but as I was walking up onto shore, um, and this was when I was wearing a shorty wetsuit, which is like short shorts and long sleeves, essentially, um, they just destroyed my legs. And when I'm talking specifically about sand right now, but when you start going into the water, the things that I'm talking about are going to be really useful there too. And I'll, I'll kind of touch on why. So circling back to this whole, like, I'm going to wear a cute bikini and wear flip-flops in the sand, right? So when you're doing that, you can get sunburned, which who doesn't have that problem? Uh, you get attacked by bugs. You get sand everywhere. You can hurt yourself really badly if there are rocks. Um, and what I realized when really quickly in Honduras, which I didn't have space to order anything. There wasn't an Amazon or the ability to buy things around me, but my sister-in-law had a full body wet, a uh, full body swimsuit. And at first I was like, girl, you are carrying a unitard into a tropical environment. Come on. And then I was like, Hey, what's up with that full body swimsuit? Where do I get one of those? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so what I wear is, um, leggings that are uh tights i also have um 
they're polyester and lycra, which is really important. You can't wear cotton. If you're going to get wet, it just doesn't work. Um, and they have stirrups so that I can put booties on and pull those booties up so that I don't have any skin all the way up to my neck and hands. And that way I can avoid everything that's happening. So those of you who are thinking about going to specifically tropical environments uh, and wanting to move around on the sand and have adventures and go hiking, consider tall socks. Tall socks help a lot. Um, it's really up to your knee that you're going to have the biggest problem, but tights fix the problem entirely. Now in Northern California, I think that the sand fleas are much, much bigger and really gross looking. I'm pretty sure that those, what, those are what they are. And they jump all over you when you have um, shorts on. They're more gross than anything else here. In tropical environments, I've had them just demolish my legs um, and make it so I can't sleep for a couple of days after that. So sand fleas, I just wanted to go on my whole thing about it because people do not <laughs> think about it. And I've gotten ruined by them on a couple of trips, Costa Rica, Honduras, and Kona, all of them destroyed. I have learned my lesson and my outfits are slightly less cute. <laughs> yeah, so I have a multi-day Northern California coastal backpacking trip coming up in april i'm doing the lost coast trail and it's the kind of the last like undeveloped section of northern california coastline uh and so now i'm gonna just spend the next several months googling sand fleas to figure out if that's going to be a problem on my on my trip so and they may well be not an issue for you at all right um so uh so the, the next thing that I wanted to talk about applies to all sandy environments. Um, how you walk and what shoes you wear are really important. So you talked about how sand, uh, snow just attacks your hip flexors and your glutes, right? And sand destroys your hips and knees in a way that is really challenging to describe. Um, it wasn't something that I thought about a lot in my 20s. As I get towards the end of my 30s and injuries pile up, I think about it quite a lot. And I basically winter on the beach and summer in the mountains. That's kind of how I build my adventures out, at least here. And um, the beach and the sand have a tendency to be slanted. And so what happens is you walk a long distance with one of your feet hitting, sometimes several inches above the other in an unstable surface that's constantly caving, right? So your stabilizing tendons and muscles are all working really, really, really hard. And they will pull out any weaknesses that are in there. Um, and so what I try to do is I try to find the sand that's been compressed by waves that have come up. So if you catch a receding tide, that works really, really well. Sometimes it doesn't work and you find a beach that's all squishy. Natural environments are just what they are, right? But trying to pick and choose where you're walking on the beach, trying to find flat places of compressed sand is really, really something that's gonna pay off once you reach the double digits of uh, miles that you are walking on the sand. And I mean, depending on how much problems you have with your hips and knees, maybe only a couple of miles, um, which leads me to shoes. So really good hiking boots are amazing. But you have a question. I do. Uh, from a fitness professional standpoint, are there, are there exercises that one should do leading up to hiking in a sandy, soft environment? Is, is there anything you would recommend like any specific movements or anything that would be valuable? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for asking that. So 
um, IT band rehab movements and uh, rolling and things like that are going to really pay off. Strengthening your knees and the stabilizing part of your hips is going to really, pardon me, pay off as well. So it's going to be really challenging for me to describe this. So I'm going to go ahead and just commit to linking a couple of YouTube videos. Uh, they're like 30 second YouTube videos, examples of exercise, rehab and prehab stuff that I have done to make my knees good enough to start walking on sand again, because they're a little bit weird and specific. And if I start describing them, we're going to be on here for like two hours. Fair. I like the idea of posting some YouTube videos. So if you're a person like me who is planning on hiking on the snow sometime, check out the show notes and check out those exercises that we will post down below. So yeah. on to shoes. On to shoes. Okay. So I used to hike in tall boots. Um, and this is like a huge mistake. And the reason that I did it, which sounds like an obviously stupid mistake and it was, and I knew it at the time. Um, but they're like, uh, kind of like Ugg boots, but not made out of animals. Um, and the reason that I do that is to keep the sand out of my shoes. So keeping the sand out of your shoes is of vital importance. The sand will absolutely destroy your feet and it will take off all of your skin. So keeping the sand out of your boots is really, really important. Um, gaiters, useful in both environments. Although I believe you've got some really cool shoes that have the gaiters built into them. And I have been meaning to buy those for myself as well. Uh, they don't necessarily have the gaiters built in, but they have like a specific gaiter made by the same company. And so they've got little tie-off points on the shoes, uh, but they're, it's like a separate product. Oh, okay. All right, cool. I just know you have cool little summer gaiters that protect your ankles from kicking dirt and rocks and stuff in there. Yeah, definitely. And it's there. Uh, so the, I think the ones you're thinking of was when I was still wearing the Ultra uh, Lone Pines as my hiking shoe, which I have stopped wearing because the the Zero Drop was giving me all kinds of problems with that. That's an entirely different conversation. So now I wear Topo Athletic uh, because they have like a three millimeter drop heel to toe and it causes less stress in the areas that I was having stress. Uh, but they also make a specific gaiter. So whatever shoe you've chosen as your hiking shoe, check on their website. It's it's possible that they also make a gaiter. Um, and then winter gaiters are a different thing. They're usually like knee high. They're usually made of Gore-Tex. Um, but yeah, like you say, you, there, there are gators for both environments. Right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, what I didn't realize when I was walking on sand with a softer shoe is that it requires so much more stabilization. That wasn't a problem in any way until I got injured. So now I choose my big hiking boots, which are also really high, which is great because I don't get very much sand in them. Um, and they're classic hiking book, right? So like the whole bottom is incredibly hard and stable. And so when you set your foot down, it creates its own base and reduces the stress all the way up your chain in that unstable surface. And it was a huge game changer for me. Yes. I, I have so much trouble with ankle high boots. It's, it's one of the only things, it's one of the only things I don't like about hiking in the winter is you pretty much have to wear like an ankle high or higher insulated boot. And it, it's so funny to think, you know, walking on snow is relatively soft. You know, it, the snow has give that 
that like a granite trail doesn't necessarily. And right. I only get blisters in the winter. Thank you for that distinction, actually, because I made a mistake there. It's not really a classic hiking boot. It's a classic winter hiking boot. Mine are flat on the bottom, hard on the bottom, kind of hard to walk in. You take much shorter strides and ankle a little bit higher than ankle high and insulated and waterproof. Yeah, I think like for me, my, my go-to hiking shoe has always just been like a traditional trail shoe with like the Vibram sole. Um, the brand I'm currently wearing are Topo Athletic, but there's 800 different brands you can get that all serve essentially the same purpose. And I think I'm going to rock those on the Lost Coast Trail, even though it's going to be sandy and beach environment. I think I'm going with just like a low top trail runner. Yeah, I mean, you're experienced enough to make decisions and I trust your decision making skills based on your body, you know, for me, these, this is the best option. And, uh, and like brought me back to the beach to see really wild sea monsters coming out of the ocean. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a little bit of, you know, moving through that, moving back into the mountains. We talked about this at the beginning. I can't, I can't actually remember when we talked about this, but when you have sand in the mountains, it's usually made out of ground up granite. And you'll find these cute little bowls that usually have like little tufts of um, like a kind of gray green grass growing out of it. And it's a really lovely place to put your tent. But staking in those environments is an absolute disaster. And, uh, and wind causes pretty hilarious problems when you don't pull it off right. My go-to is honestly just finding one with trees around it so that I can tie to trees. So I have a solution for this problem. Uh, there is a, a way to use your stakes, and this works in the snow and in the sand, which is wonderful for this episode since we're talking about those two environments. Uh, and the concept is called, it's a dead man. So in the sand, in, in one of those decomposed granite bowls that you're describing, the idea would be you put the stake through the, the stake loop, sideways so now it's laying flat on the ground instead of being dug into the ground you know like hammered into the ground you're laying it flat on the ground and then you pile rocks on top of it that's so smart that was the other thing i was going to say is you can also take your your um rope and bring it out and put a rock on it but putting the stake in is so brilliant because yeah, it you... always pulls out exactly so the the idea with a dead man in a sandy situation is that um, you want to pile enough weight on top of that stake so that it can't move. And the stake gives a little bit of just like grip or traction and whatever you want to describe it as, you know, between the, the friction between the rock and the stake itself keeps it from yanking out of the ground. In the snow, you can do a really similar concept. And I actually just learned a new way to do this that I'm super, super excited about. Because one of the hardest parts about doing the dead man idea in the snow is in the morning when the ground is frozen or the snow is has refrozen, you got to dig your stake out. Oh shit! <laughs> and it's just yeah, it's a it's a nightmare. Um, so I learned this great new trick. You take a little bit of paracord with loops on both ends. So when you get to you know you've you've now flattened your area in the snow to put your tent down, you've stomped it down really good, made yourself a nice flat even surface. Um, you dig holes. 
at the wherever your stake points are. Let's for this example, let's say we have four stake out points, one on each corner. So you dig four holes roughly where you would stake your tent. You then find a good size branch, uh, preferably a dead one. Don't go cutting new branches off trees, but find some dead dead wood or dead branches. You put that in this hole that you've dug, this trench, and you wrap the cord around it so that both ends are coming out towards your tent. So you've got two loops towards your tent, and then the cord is looped around the uh, branch, which is now in the snow, and then you bury it and you stomp it down really good with your snowshoe or your ski or whatever it is that you're uh, that you're running with. And then you get these little tiny carabiners. They sell them at REI or any outdoor retailer has these little tiny S-shaped carabiners. They're about the size of a quarter. You hook that through both loops and then you hook that to the tent, the stake loop on your tent. And you That's can, brilliant. Yeah. And then in the morning... When the ground is frozen, you just unhook the carabiner and pull the cord out and you leave the branch buried. Right. Okay. All right. I love that. Yeah. It's, Last it's few... a... Sorry. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just a really fantastic way to set your tent up. It takes minimal effort and, uh, and you don't have to worry about digging everything out in the morning. Um, other things I have done in the winter to set up my tent that have worked really, really, really well. Uh, bury your snowshoe about halfway into the ground and just lash your, the corner of your tent to that snowshoe. Uh, you can use your ice axe, you can use your trekking poles, anything like that. You just, you need something to, you know, to hold that tent together when the wind inevitably pops up. But I'm really excited about this new dead man idea with the sticks and the cordage. I haven't done it yet, but I, I'm looking forward to it. I just learned about it. <laughs> I love that. Um, I want to see pictures also. And like the snowshoe thing is so smart because you walk in with them. Right. Yeah. And it's just something you already have. Like, um, and the same with like, if you're carrying an ice axe or something like that, you can ram the axe down into the ground and lash your tent corner around that as a stability point. You know, there's a lot of, of nifty little tricks you can do to keep your shelter standing and, and a lot of them work in the, in the sandy environments too, with, with some simple modifications, like dead manning in the sand, especially like in desert environments, you definitely want to find rocks and stuff like that. But like in a coastal environment, like the environments that you're used to hiking in, um, big bits of driftwood and paracord, just tie your tent down to driftwood. Yeah. Or on that particular hike, there happens to be a full size, uh, el- um, whale like head in bones and that oh, would wow. be a cool thing to tie to <laughs> it's really cool i'll send you a picture okay I would I've, like got, to see I've got like two more tips about that and then i'm just gonna review them really quick um because like i love this i escaped to the cold beach in the winter mainly because i haven't been really experienced in the snow but uh a lot of us escape to the hot beach in the winter too right when getting away from the blues, which we'll get to in a second. But my my two last ones are, uh, if you have pain, it's not going to get better. Don't keep going. Stop and do something about it. So if it's sand in your shoes, if it's your hips hurting really bad, if it's your knees hurting really bad, it's not going to get better. Stop and have prepared for how you're going to deal with that situation. Um, because I think that people don't think about how hard sand is on your body to walk through um, or run through or hike through, whatever you're using. Um, 
And so this one kind of circles back and then I'm just going to review them all. And that's sun. And, and sun is really, really big on beaches. There aren't trees. There isn't shade. There is no shelter. So if it's wind, if it's cold, if it's weather, if it's, if it's sun, it's going to be all over you all the time and you won't be able to escape it. And so planning for that, I think is really important. So in the hot environments, full body covering your skin is really, really, really clutch. Um, for me, I dive always in a, in a wetsuit that covers my upper body. And as I mentioned earlier, those stirrup leggings and booties. Um, if you are, if you're hiking in, in a, like actually just hiking, not diving, you can wear looser clothes, but keeping it covered is really important because the sun is quite damaging and it also is exhausting. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's important in the snow too. I think something people don't think about, like whenever I'm out on the snow, I use like a 50 SPF uh, sunblock on my face because not only are you getting the sun beating down on you, it's reflecting back off the snow. And so you're, you're getting blasted from two directions and you can get really nasty sunburns. You can get uh, what's called snow blind. So you need appropriate eyewear and stuff like that when you're in the snow. But yeah, definitely sun, no matter where you're hiking or adventuring, you know, whatever, whatever your choice of adventure is, pre- prepare to protect yourself from the sun. Absolutely. Some of the worst sunburns I've gotten were skiing. Yeah, I don't think people I don't think people think about that very much because like snow is an amazing reflective surface. Right. And if you're, you know, if you've got the blazing sun, if you've got a nice clear gorgeous day and you've got the sun beating down on you from behind, it's also blasting back up into your face from this right. perfect mirror. Right. And uh, specifically on areas of your body that are not adapted to having a lot of sun on them. Like the bottom, your neck, your bottom of your chin, the bottom of my nose got sunburned really bad once, which is hilarious. I was like 10 um, and it like just hurt so bad. Um, but like, you don't, you don't, you don't think about that. You think of snow, you think of cold, you don't think of sun and sunburn, but sunburn is really bad in the snow. Definitely. And another thing, and I, I had meant to talk about this earlier, but I forgot and you just reminded me. Another thing people don't think about in the winter is dehydration. Drinking water while you're snow hiking is just as important as drinking water when you're hiking in the blazing hot sun of July. Like you're still expending energy and you're still sweating. You may not feel the sweat coming out and you may not see the sweat coming out, but you're sweating just as much. So you're still losing all those fluids and losing all those electrolytes so staying hydrated in the winter is is equally important as it is in the summer months. Definitely. And like I I think I think you're touching on a point and if I can be self-indulgent and tangent just a tiny bit. I I feel like one of the things that I've done for myself recently only is think about how to make my recovery constant through adventures. So that to limit the impact of things on me, right? So cover your skin so you aren't getting sun on you all of the time and it's exhausting. Like move to a part of a beach that where you can walk a little bit flatter or eat plenty of food, seriously. Drink enough water constantly. Like taking care of yourself as you go makes it so that you can do more, which 
is really, really cool. But usually people don't think about it that way, right? You think about it, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to be tough, I'm going to be gritty, I'm going to do this thing. But you can do more of that thing if you take care of yourself properly while you're doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. I And that that's a lesson I've learned the hard way over a lot of years. Like Brian and I had this habit of not eating enough while we were moving. You know, we would have like designated breaks where we would stop and eat. You know, you do like breakfast, midday snack, lunch, snack, dinner or whatever. And it, you, you'd think we would learn the lesson sooner. But this goes back to the whole professional idiots thing. Um, every single time we would eat and like, oh, man, I, I feel a million times better. And then we would walk until we felt like shit again. <laughs> and we would eat and go, oh, man, I, I just I feel so much better right now. And then you would walk until you feel like shit. And you would think like any normal person would just go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm putting this together now. When I eat, I don't feel like shit. And it took us way longer to learn that than it should have. Oh, my gosh. It's it's such a big thing, especially when you are incredibly stoked about what you're doing. You don't want to, like, stop and do something else. And uh, for me, my canary in a coal mine is if I'm not having fun. So if I notice I'm not having fun, I always ask myself if I have if I need to eat. And that's that's the almost always the answer. If I'm like, man, this sucks. It almost always is like time to eat a builder bar. No, we're good. Everything's great again. I'm having so much fun. Every time. And I'm so much worse about it when I'm solo hiking. Like if I'm hiking with a partner, typically that partner will be like, yo, we should probably stop and eat because I'm starving. And if I'm starving, you're probably starving. But when I'm by myself, it's like, man, I'm really hungry, but I just want to make it to the to this next summit or i just want to make it to this river crossing or i just want to make it to whatever random unimportant goal i've decided i just you know i just i just want to make it to this one thing and then i'll eat and then like it's that same thing like you're describing this fucking sucks i'm not having fun this is miserable i should go home and then i eat and i'm like woo the stoke is back Totally. Oh my God. Totally. Um, okay. So I'll review stuff in the show notes. Let's go to trips. Yeah. So I, uh, actually forgot what we were doing for trips. You came up with a really <laughs> great idea and I have no idea what it was. Um, okay. So we were talking about ways, to, ways that we deal with some, or, or with summer blues. Who has that except for Laura Del Rey? Okay. Ways we deal with winter blues. Oh, right. Yeah. No, that's yes. I do remember now. <laughs> mostly because you, mostly just because you said it out loud. Why don't you go first? Yeah. So uh, both of us struggle with um, when things get colder, darker, grayer, uh, and feeling that seasonal depression thing. For me, I just like am generally less stoked. But no amount of food makes it so that everything is fun again, and it's just such a bummer. Um, so ways that I deal with that are. Um, doing the thing I don't want to do. And so what I mean by that is that usually the thing that's going to make you feel better is the thing, at least in my experience, that you have the biggest, biggest resistance to. The other day for me, it was a short hike. I was like, I just stay in my house and I live above my gym and my office is downstairs and I can easily not leave the house if I don't want to. And when it's very cold and gray and wet and not fun outside, I can just go, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll go tomorrow or whenever it's a little bit more convenient. And uh, my partner actually called me out and was like, you're going to feel better if you go on that short little hike. And 
you know, I walked three and a half miles on some BS muddy, you know, Oakland Hills little thing. And, you know, I felt so much better and I generally feel better. I was not feeling great for a couple of weeks and I still feel stoked. And I only went outside for like an hour. It was so, it was so easy, but I had so much resistance to it. So that goes for whatever that means for you. Maybe it's reading, maybe it's whatever it is. If you feel resistant to it, probably just do it, but put on another jacket. (laughs) So my first one, you know, it circles back. I mentioned that that uh, YouTube poll that I did about, you know, what's keeping you from winter hiking and the fact that it just gets dark so early. I have definitely been like planning trips and just decided, uh, you know, maybe I don't want to go. It's going to be dark at like five o'clock. Then I've got to figure out like 13 hours in the tent and freezing cold and blah, 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 blah. So the number one thing I started doing was bringing stuff to read in the tent. And that, that has helped a lot. Cause I love reading. I like reading at home. I like, you know, obviously I'm going to like reading on the trail. So I've started bringing reading material with me to kind of get over that and to stop that from being an excuse to not go on the trip. Because I think seasonal depression, one of the main ways it manifests is you allow yourself to talk yourself out of doing things that you know you're going to enjoy. Exactly. So for me, one way to combat that is reading. And then something I've started doing just in the last couple of winter trips, so I'll download movies onto my phone and then I'll just oh. sit there. Yeah. I'll just sit there snuggled up in my zero degree bag and, and watch a movie. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Um, all right. So I, I love that both of our first ones were basically just like, do the thing that you like doing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, my next one is, um, keep a regular training schedule, which actually gets pretty challenging for me in the winter. Um, As mentioned, and will probably continue to be mentioned many times, I run very, very cold and my gym is basically outside. And so it's the one time of the year that I don't want to work out. And if if I skip workouts or I don't want to do the things that I have on my program, I'll get bratty about it and my partner happens to be my coach. And so I can kind of like push the things around and not do, you know, again, the thing that, that makes me happy, but it's also the thing that warms my body up. That reminds me why I spend, you know, eight to 10 hours standing there watching other people work out being cold. Um, and, uh, and that endorphin rush, like it, it really is something that's, that's really, really good for me in the winter time. And The other day when it was in the low 40s, upper 30s, which is very cold here, like half my garden is gone. um, I just brought some dumbbells into my apartment and did a really basic workout. And it was silly. It was small. It wasn't some kind of I'm going to brag on Instagram about how strong I am with this barbell workout. But I felt better and just moving. So I guess that is training for me, but generally just finding a way to move and get some endorphins, even for like 20, 30 minutes. Nice. I think for me, another thing that helps a lot is uh, actually start planning. Like, like, you know, you have like this loose idea of like, oh, I want to hike this trail and camp near this lake. But that, you know, it's not really a fully formulated plan. 
And so a lot of times if my brain is telling me, yeah, do you really want to do that? Is that really a thing you want to do? Like I'll go out into my gear closet in the garage and just like, okay, so I need this pack and I need this sleeping bag and I need these clothing layers. And these are, this is the food I want to eat. And I'll actually start like planning the more like minute details of a trip. And that always like brings the stoke back, you know, where it's like, it takes it like from the idea stage to like, I'm actually doing something to facilitate, like, like making this happen. And I feel like that helps a lot where it's just like, even if it's just like something as simple as just like sitting on my couch and, and writing out a list, like, okay, so I need these items. I need this much food. I need to plan for this, you know, possibility. So I need these pieces of gear in case this thing happens. And like, just like getting my brain engaged in the idea of leaving the house and doing the thing. Okay. I love that. Also, my last one is, is planning, but in a totally different way. Um, so I often use the winter time when there's a little bit less going on and less exciting things to run out of the house and do is that I plan my what usually year, right? Because my coldest time here is like January and February. And so I will use that time to get really excited about what I'm going to do. I'll look at the trails I'm going to do in the spring and where the best wildflower is going to be and where rainfall has been and plan out these trips and actually put them on my calendar with links to that trail in all trails and links to that article from like 2005 where there was a super bloom in that one place and maybe you could go there and maybe it'd be really cool. And like finding the things that are exciting. And for me right now, I just got too excited about Kona and just booked another trip back to Kona. Um, And so that's the thing that I'm really excited about in February. And I often do that as well as book myself going places that are, that are warm kind of at the end of the cold period. So all through the cold period, I can be like, yeah, but I'm going to Kona soon. (laughs) That's a good one. I like that. I might have to start uh, employing that one myself. And then I guess my last one to, to really help, with the seasonal depression stuff is uh, I reach out to friends who don't deal with it. Like, yeah. So you just, you just kind of build your own support group and you're like, okay, so seasonal depression gets to me. Seasonal depression forces me to cancel plans. Seasonal depression, you know, allows me to build like this arsenal of excuses as to why I won't do a thing. And then I'll typically reach out to somebody who I know doesn't deal with that stuff and be like, yo, this is where I'm at. You know, how, how, what would you do? And then, you know, you just build yourself a little support group of close friends and, and chosen family who can explain to you in a way your brain is not thinking of why you should just go and do the thing that you want to do. Okay. All right. I love this. And um, I think that the the answer to the answer that we just reiterated over and over and over is like, focus on the shit that makes you stoked. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it, it's so easy. I mean, I deal with depression year round. It, it gets worse in the cold. It gets worse when the sun goes down earlier because I love the sun. I'm a huge Same. fan of being outdoors in the sun. Um, and so in the winter months when it's like dark at like five o'clock or whatever, you know, especially working full time, like 
in the in the warmer months, I'll come home, like I'll walk my dog, I'll do all this other stuff, then I'll come home and make dinner. And then in the winter, it's like I'll come home and I'll just like zone out to TV or zone out staring at the phone or whatever. And reminding myself that, you know what, you really enjoy walking your dog after work. Like you should just go do that because that's more fun than than rewatching some stupid TV show again or or zoning out on Instagram for two hours or whatever. So, yeah, I think bottom line, uh, tying them all together, just focus on the stoke. Right. I, I actually really love that you just uh, you just went down that that little tiny rabbit hole because I didn't really start to get over. I mean, get over. I get better at dealing with the seasonal depression issue. I kind of just thought it was just a way that you had to live that when it got cold and gray out, I just would feel like shit and be less productive. But this specific conversation, learning how to get out in the snow, getting better gear so you can be out in the wetness, like learning how to be on, on beaches. Because for me, with my tiny car and mountains really far away, beaches are the most interesting place that doesn't have snow, right? So it's easily accessible to me and doesn't usually have weather that's unbearable. So I can usually get out on beaches. Um, and it, I didn't start doing that until really, really recently. And that's the thing that made me feel the best in the winter is when I'm still like, you know, out doing the things that I love. I just am a, I'm a lot colder and a lot puffier with layers. <laughs> yeah. Layering, layering. If you take one thing away from this episode about at least winter hiking, I don't know if this really applies too much to the sand side of things. Right. Layering, layering, layering. Yeah. <laughs>